Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. So for us, the key focus was to create basically a simple roadmap to help organizations find a clear path to AML CTF compliance for this year and in the years ahead, not just in Australia, but in other countries as well. We did develop variants of this collateral for um, other markets as we are um, a global uh, product line and we're aiming to achieve a clear path to compliance across many different jurisdictions. So the paper just dissects key issues and priorities at both the local and global levels to help uh, professionals to to find greater clarity and certainty in what is a, a very dynamic landscape. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Sasha. I'm the editor of the Australian Compliance Institute. And today we have a full cast uh, for the podcast. We have Head of Content for Regulatory Compliance, Kieran Seed. Welcome back to the podcast. We have our outgoing CEO, Naomi Burley, and we have our interim CEO, Calvert Duffy. Welcome all. Thank you. Thanks, Kwame. So today we're going to be, I guess, very roughly speaking about, I guess, the state of AML, um, maybe in the Australian context. And if you wanted to, if we had time to touch on it, maybe a bit of international. And um, this is sort of really launching off of something that LexisNexis published maybe a couple of months ago now, I think. The 2023-2024 AML CTF Compliance Roadmap Leveraging ISO 37301. So I'm going to sort of... Helpful, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. So I'm going to kind of throw you under the bus sorry Kieran very from the very beginning um first um I guess with this white paper what what were your key focus areas and why did you think to do it through that focus of ISO 37301 that's a really good question Kwame and certainly not uh, a bus throw from my perspective one that we're very um keen on creating that alignment between you know AML concepts and tying it back to to ISO and ISO 37301 and the importance of having a compliance management system. So for us, the key focus was to create basically a simple roadmap to help organizations find a clear path to AML CTF compliance for this year and in the years ahead, not just in Australia, but in other countries as well. We did develop variants of this collateral for um, other markets as we are um, a global uh, product line and we're aiming to achieve a clear path to compliance across many different jurisdictions. So the paper just dissects key issues and priorities at both the local and global levels to help uh, professionals to to find greater clarity and certainty in what is a, a very dynamic landscape. And there's there's obviously a lot going on at various different levels across different regulators, but by streamlining regulatory change and considering the biggest priorities is obviously a more obvious path to follow. That's not to suggest that the reg change roadmap is simple. There's a lot of significant changes on the horizon, but by planning ahead and taking action, they can be well prepared. The, the paper we also followed on from the key themes of the presentation we did at the the AML Congress mm-hmm. uh, a few months ago. So, you know, some of the key takeaways that we wanted to leave were, you know, establishing an obligation baseline for AML professionals, refreshing on concepts of regulatory and compliance risk, distilling the compliance problem, and also considering that path forward, as I mentioned before. So, as you mentioned, the key aspect of that was analysing the impact of having a compliance management system or CMS to achieve effect, effective regulatory risk management. And that's, you know, looking through the eyes, uh, the, the lens of um, ISO 37301, which is the standard for compliance management. And what we've really seen is a clear need, perhaps more so than ever before, really, for organisations to have a comprehensive CMS in place to, to help deliver 
tangible compliance outcomes. And that, that definitely applies in the AML context as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Kieran. I think that that's, you know, we're talking about all the changes coming in and potentially simplifying AML and all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, all of those elements that are in 37301 are what's required in an AML framework. And I think organisations who have only been looking at part A and part B and sort of picking, cherry picking, the things that they want to put in, they're missing out on the gains they could have had by having a complete system end-to-end, thinking about meeting the obligations and expectations, you know, including training and comms and all the other bits and pieces as as an entirety of framework as opposed to ticking off, oh, yeah, we did, we did that section of part A. Yeah, sure. And I'm going to pull Calvert into the conversation here based on your, I guess, experience generally. You know, with those that you've worked with in the past, do you see ISO 37301 as sort of like a, maybe not a magic bullet, but would really help in companies meet their AML and financial crime sort of issues that they're tackling? Sure. Um, It's one of those things that a lot of people don't know where to start. And so when they, especially the the new people coming in under tranche two, when we get it, it's a it's a great place to start because they go well. What does part A be mean? What does part B mean? Um, do, which one do I have to do? Do I have to be registered? All those sorts of things. And when you look at it logically, you can sit down and start from the beginning and work your way to the end. You don't have to do it in exactly the order, but it's a darn good idea to do everything that's in there to the, scale to your business because we have very, very small businesses that are caught. And we have some rather large businesses with massive turnovers that are caught. Kieran, back to you. So obviously there's been a lot of changes or a lot of changes to come that haven't already happened in and outside of the sort of financial crime space. What are some of the big blips on the radar that you hear compliance professionals and businesses talking about at the moment? Oh gosh, how long have we got? Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> Calvert's already alluded to to one, which is yep. you know, Tranche 2, which we expect to to come. Whether it's coming up in the right timeline is, well, open to interpretation, but really we expect it to, to really come through. And as Austrac continues to take enforcement action against non-compliance with uh, existing laws, there's strong indications that that will press ahead over, you know, the next you know year or year and a half or two years. So, you know, of course, for those not familiar, um, the um, the Attorney General's Department released an extensive consultation paper covering both the modernisation of the existing framework as well as the introduction of those trans two reforms. And there's, uh, I think it's about 14 to 15 million dollars that's in the budget over the next um, four years um, from the May budget to to support those necessary policy and legislative reforms. But like all regulatory change, that I guess primary AMLCTF focus that takes place amidst a, a swathe of other you know, primary and secondary changes. One, I guess, close parallel would be the Australian Sanctions Office undertaking its review of the autonomous sanctions framework ahead of the expiry of the autonomous sanctions regulations heading into 2024 um, to make sure that it remains fit for purpose. So there's further regulatory change on that front. In the broader regulatory landscape. A lot of our customers are honing in on the Privacy Act changes and the spectre of those impending reforms definitely loom large for businesses, particularly if they've got cross-border activities or supply chains. I mean, I could spend all day talking about the Privacy Act (laughs) review, but I won't. Of course, other things like for our financial services customers, they're also preparing for the financial accountability regime, finally passed Parliament back in September, and it's going to take effect over the next uh, six to 18 months. 
And then, of course, in the same space, while the timelines on the implementation of CPS 230 have been pushed back by APRA, uh, significant work is being done across banking, insurance, super, to, to strengthen their management of operational risk and resilience. So that's, I guess, the snapshot view. There's certainly a lot more if you look across a broader swathe of industries, but um, it's, I guess, a bit of an illustration of the extent of the reg change management problem for organisations when they are particularly looking at particular functions, focusing on priority areas and adjusting to new priorities and new regulatory changes coming down the line and making sure that they have enough time and sufficient capacity to uh, understand the nature of change, but also to roll out changes across the business and adequately prepare the business to you know, maintain that culture of compliance generally. Yeah. And, and it, look, it's a big one with uh, FAR for those who are pulled into that, as well as um, CPS 230, because the they're big change pieces in and of themselves. And so to be working through, you know, who's going to be accountable for what, while some of those things themselves that they're going to be accountable for are in play, is a really tricky conversation and a bit of a dance to be done there. Absolutely. And there's a great a greater um, focus being put on board level and senior manager accountability across various different regulatory areas in Australia, mm-hmm. definitely, but in other countries as well. So what we're seeing is that greater emphasis on the board needing to have that oversight and understanding and confidence in the compliance management system in a general sense and in those specific areas to uh, be able to give that that sign off that um, not only is is the their general attestation level of compliance, but that that compliance culture is being embedded across the organisation. Yeah, and that that coincides very well with ASIC's new version of the world when it comes to board members being upskilled. Mm. So it's you know there's a there's a heck of a lot of changes coming through for folk who thought oh well you know we've done this we've done that rest on our laurels sorry folks just gets worse and more and each regulator has their own version of the world and it's interesting that we sort of danced into all those areas of accountability and brought in APRA and ASIC into this conversation you know before we recorded this podcast one of the questions I think that was raised is will lots of the other changes coming from the other spaces be a distraction from our obligations within the financial crime and AML space I think from a far perspective probably not a distraction but also would enhance because of course there needs to be an accountable person at some point but do you see there being a difficulty focusing on some of these key areas or maybe splitting our attentions, if you like? If you're unfamiliar with the change management or if they're run as separate projects, potentially. But I think that if the compliance function isn't siloing itself from AML, from privacy and from your cyber team, as sort of the hot topics. If you're all having conversations and you're all running it as a single project that's pulling everyone along, then I think you will fare a lot better than, yes, to your point, if everything's being run as a separate project then I wouldn't blame someone who is in on the board or in senior management for not being able to figure out which thing they should read first. That's always been the dilemma. Do you remember back in the good old days, Naomi, when we had a, a project which was some people decided to look at how many pieces of legislation a typical business would face in Australia? And I, if I remember, it was financial services mostly, but it was about 11,000 pieces of legislation at the federal level the state level, the local level, and then depending upon where you interface and how you interface with overseas jurisdictions. 
That's a mm. lot of things for people to keep their minds about. Well, that's this right. Is and Kieran can attest to that. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> I was going to say. Kieran can attest to that. That's his bread and butter. I was <laughs> about to say, it's our bread and butter, and even we find it challenging. And this is what we do to make organisations, um, I guess, lives easier on trying to manage that regulatory compliance problem. And it's a challenge for us because it, and it's one that we are constantly grappling with because of that volume of change that organisations are encountering in their primary and secondary focus, but yep. also how that landscape is evolving over time. Think about that that uh, 11,000 number and think about how many changes that those 11,000 um, instruments and their subsidiary rules undergo on an ongoing basis. That's a very challenging prospect for, organ for an organisation to keep on top of, not just to keep on top of, but also to actually implement and operationalise within the business. And members always ask me, how do other organisations then set their priorities? Um, and again, harking back to the bad old days, um, you know, once upon a time, the directors would go, well, which one will we get pinged for the most and are most likely to get pinged for? Nowadays, because all of the regulators are, you know, well versed in enforcement, they're resourced and they're eager, um, I think you, you're just in there going, all of them? Sorry, it won't just be ASIC or it won't just be a nice letter from APRA or it won't be a letter that we can look at in six months' time. It's um, all of them <laughs> and all of them will get you on the front page and all of them will get you in <laughs> big trouble. So, and, and I guess circling back to your original question, Kwame, is it a distraction? For that reason, it's it's not a distraction because all of it needs to be taken into consideration. But if you've got... The, if you've got a proper compliance management system in place, then it shouldn't be a distraction because you have that that level of oversight. And you know, bringing all of the points together, we've been talking a lot about accountability. If you have a proper CMS in place, proper CMS has that program level oversight by the board. Mm -hmm. So if you've properly implemented that, then you've got that scalable CMS in place and you've got the accountability set up and the ability to manage a scalable level of regulatory change, regardless of how, how frequent that might be. So something that was also brought up in previous conversation, and I'm going to point at Calvert because he actually brought this up, is if bringing it back to that conversation of financial crime, is there really an understanding? Do, do you get the sense that organisations understand the different types of financial crime that there are? Because so far we've just been using it as a single phrase, but there are many different types. Do you, do you feel that that exists or is there confusion or conflation? I'm sorry, are you asking me that question? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a spectrum. That's part of the problem. For some people, they get bogged down in one area, and for others, they have uh, a, a, a more small C Catholic approach to what they face. And it, it in, really should in, be informed by what part of an industry they're in, whether it's in financial services or banking or um, aircraft maintenance, it doesn't really matter. Everybody faces the juggling act, um, even before you start taking into account the, the sorts of things that are coming over the horizon now. And it's just not going to go away. You just have to find better ways of doing it. And the more you can automate, uh, the more you can legitimately i mean too not just oh yeah we'll have a tick box here um the more simple it will be for you to add some to that uh, milieu but but to your point kwame as well i think 
I think the maturity of understanding of what's in that spectrum of financial crime varies hugely. There are some entities that have always had a specialist who sits in sanctions, for instance, and oh, they've relied yeah. on relied on that. But there are others where they only really thought about it when Russia invaded Ukraine, mm-hmm. and, you know, and and it probably should have been something that had been on their radar. So it's and sanctions is an incredibly complex area to understand what you are actually meant to do as well. So so I think that there is a growing awareness. I think that there is the potential for some confusion when you're having simultaneous conversations about your obligation risks. So there are things you are required to do and they're not really negotiable versus an ESG um, values-driven approach where the organisation may have um, may have decided to sit modern slavery, for example, in, in the S. And um, as long as it keeps referring back to what you you know that you, what you are required to do as well as what you want to do you know and making sure that they do marry up and that you've give it in consideration and it's not just a motherhoody statement that sits over there and you tick the box because you think you've got it in your ESG program so i think that there's there's interesting complexities arising in this space because some of those fin crime things sit in there you know some organizations may think that external frauds and scams for instance you know does it isn't really terribly relevant to them because they're not running the scam, they're not the one breaking the law. But with the regulatory emphasis on that, that's definitely something to be considered and definitely something that in all likelihood in your organisation there was someone who cares about fraud um, occurring using their products. So it's an incredibly uh, complex area and I think there is increasing understanding for some organisations and a lot more attention on it. But I think that there are some that's still being caught out with, oh, there's also this and there's this other thing. And maybe we should have a policy on how we're going to deal with customers who who have been the victim of a scam, even though it's theoretically not our problem. So there's lots and lots and lots in that space. I think that from a from the perspective of the the industry distinction we definitely see that in terms of you know industry maturity whether they have mature aml team do they have that that sanctions based team one of the other key things is for those organizations that are more exposed to um, those particular kinds of risk to what extent is their understanding within that function but also to what extent has that been rolled out across the organization is their understanding of, of frontline staff around the kinds of things that they're going to be interacting with from a, a risk perspective we look at something like privacy, there's a greater emphasis on the, I guess, the culture of compliance. People are regularly trained on what are the kinds of examples of what would constitute a privacy breach, a data breach, but do we have the same level of operationalization and, and training and understanding of money laundering risk and terror financing risk? And I think that does de- does depend upon the industry. And, and to, you know, to the, the general point, certainly the, the, aspects around um, the sanctions and understanding of sanctions and the impact of sanctions varies by by country as well. Certainly conceptually in countries like New Zealand, for example, you know, there weren't dedicated regulations to the same extent until that, uh, until the conflict started to happen and you have dedicated regulations that are for Russia-based sanctions. So certainly there is a, an evolution in understanding, not just in organisations, but actually in, in different countries as well. Yeah. 
Well, I think we've sort of run out of time. So here's an opportunity for any last words um, to sort of help members who are just trying to figure out how to do all this and trying to use that white paper that LexisNexis published to sort of have a strong and robust compliance management system with um, financial crime and all the other things we've mentioned in mind. My take on that would be community. The community you're in, not just where you work, but the compliance community, the risk community, the AML, whatever, whatever community you're in, talk to those people, um, get together and it's very lonely sometimes sitting in a, an organisation when you're the head of compliance or even the only compliance person and you don't know where to start and who to ask. Join an organisation like um, ACI. Um, get into um, knowing who's doing what in LexisNexis. Um, talk to a, your law firm. You know, there are all sorts of ways of, of getting help. And sometimes people who've been around a while have some shortcuts that don't um, increase your risk, but certainly decrease your workload. My thing would be get started now. If you're experienced in this area at all, you understand what the intent is behind the legislation and sort of get into that because that will help you understand where to place it in your CMS and how to think about that risk a little bit better. So it's the same with sanctions. So how could that happen in your organisation? You're putting that hat on as opposed to knowing the letter of the law, for example. How could modern slavery impact your organisation? You're thinking about it in, in a holistic organisational risk way. So definitely get in there. And the structure of 37301 is to take you through that step. It's a very familiar structure of a certification standard. You had the same one for your information technology risks. So I think that it will actually be a really useful tool for you to get other people in the organisation on board with the process you're going through because they'll understand the steps through it and what you're trying to achieve um, with it. It's a, it's a bit of a common language thing that you'll be able to use with people. Sure. And last but not least, Kieran. Uh, I think that from my perspective, I'd echo both both the previous points that Calvin and, and um, Naomi had mentioned. Certainly, it's important to have that understanding of community and compliance managers. Certainly, you know, they move between organisations, they bring their experience with them, they bring them to new industries in a lot of instances. So have that strong understanding of community and learn from what has come before, particularly if you're if you're an entity or a profession in what is going to be newly added to the AML regime, learn from the experiences of existing organisations, existing professions, and use that as part of your journey. And when you're looking at establishing a compliance program, as Naomi mentioned, you have to start somewhere, get moving, uh, look at the experiences of what's happening locally, but also globally in what is likely to happen going forward and take that proactive stance on general compliance management and also looking at particular regulatory areas as well. And to the extent that it's relevant to you, if the if we can at LexisNexis help you on that path to compliance and you have other questions or queries about that, we're more than happy to have that conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Calvert, Naomi and Kieran. This podcast has been a production of the Australian Compliance Institute and the music was done by Rob Neary.